I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. Welcome to School of Everything Else. What If, Season 1. Space. Time. Reality. It's more than a linear path. It's a prism of endless possibility. That doesn't sound ominous at all. You sure don't seem too freaked out about all this, kid. What you doing out there all by yourself anyway? Exploring the world. Sounds fun. But why stop at one world when we can show you all of them? I am the Watcher. guide through these vast new realities. Follow me and dare to face the unknown. And ponder the question. What if? Give me the tour. With us this time around, we have Greg Downing of the Through the Wind Door podcast. Hello, Greg. When you're out of luck, always go duck. And Austin Wilden, who guested on our The Falcon and the Winter Soldier episode. Hello, Austin. What? I like anime. Side note, I only just found out about a 1985 espionage thriller called The Falcon and the Snowman. It's a fairly safe bet that that's one of the reasons the show is named The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. But back to What If. Now, this is going to be an unusual MCU show for me, because for the first time we have a mixed bag where I feel a passionate distaste for several of the decisions made. I guess the equivalent in the theatrically released productions would be the handling of Thanos, but that affected me over time. It didn't really come out in that first episode. There was kind of a iffiness, but we didn't really get into Thanos at the time like that. I think we talked about him Oh, like in the interim and definitely during the Endgame podcast. So it, and it also took several years from Infinity War onwards to percolate. And in many ways, I'm still working out better ways to represent this character and crucially of those around him in order to not convey unsettling messages about abusers and dealing with them to the largest theatre audience attendance that will probably ever be. Let that one sink in. Beginning with the trailer for What If, around the same time as the ones for Falcon and Loki, this was the one I was extremely excited about. The What If comic, which began all the way back in 1977, asking, what if Spider-Man joined the Fantastic Four, never particularly gripped a major readership. The one-shot nature of the wildly speculative and unevenly written book means getting invested is hard. The thing we're actually invested in is the existing Marvel Universe, that it's playing with, so these remixes are presented in a way that will delight or annoy in unequal measure. But I figured with the track record of the MCU, as overseen by Kevin Feige, backed up by a team of creatives who are 
excellent at both short-form and long-form storytelling and not a little gifted at marketing. Plus, the toolbox of imagination and recruitment pile of lockdown-bound MCU actors able to phone in their performances and the sandbox of established events along with a fresh animated format presented greater potential than any other Disney Plus show. All of these elements and that excellent trailer actually kind of brought a tear to my eye. This was the one I was really waiting for. And when we got there, what if season one started strong for me and then continued in okay-ish fashion, peaked with the Doctor Strange episode and then plummeted off a cliff to the two very worst installments. These are two of the worst things that Marvel have ever done, as far as I'm concerned. And then there were three mediocre episodes, including a two-part finale, and then it ended. Now, the trap laid out for us is to grouse incessantly and go round and round in a fashion that is neither entertaining nor engaging and may drag for all involved, including and especially you, dear listener. So I made the deliberate choice to restructure the episodes that we cover tonight into an order that starts bad and climbs the mountain to really good. I want to get these things said with minimal repetition, and I want this show to be whip-quick because I don't enjoy dwelling on disappointment. This is why I try not to talk about The Rise of Skywalker. And as we go through, I have talking points that correlate with the weaknesses and strengths of the show, and Sharon and our guests may differ significantly in their take home from each episode, as will you, the listener. The key factor here is not to contribute to the climate of negativity that grips the critical world as the algorithm points people towards content that expresses raging indignation over a more nuanced critique that asks you to consider things from a broader and yet more personal perspective. Our intentions are to highlight what Marvel usually do so right by illustrating where they have misstepped here and where they eventually land those moves in a way that feels authentic to their 13-year body of work. Because how can we understand or truly appreciate the good without fathoming the bad? And if you think about it, we've had what-ifs for quite a while now. Into the Spider-Verse was an absolutely fantastic example of what if Peter Parker was killed and a new kid had to be Spider-Man. This stemmed from the 2011 comic book Ultimate Universe introduction of Miles Morales, written by Brian Michael Bendis, which similarly involved that version of Peter dying and Miles stepping up. That Ultimate Universe was itself a reboot of Spidey, the X-Men and the Avengers in the 616 universe that readers had been reading since the 60s, the Silver Age, and that new readers could get into the adventures of without needing to know massive amounts of existing continuity. In other words, the Marvel movies, beginning with Robert Downey Jr. Also, not coincidentally, what if Marvel Zombies began in the Ultimate Universe with the 2005 Mark Millar issues of Ultimate Fantastic Four before proceeding with its own recurring, long recurring, series of mini-series begun with Robert Walking Dead Kirkman and his Marvel Zombies. The Ultimate Comic Universe also gave us What If Nick Fury Was Black as opposed to A FEEBLE CRUSTY OLD WHITE MAN in Ultimate Spider-Man, also written by Bendis for Ultimate Team-Up in 2001, and then that was adopted by Mark Millar, who made him much more overtly and very clearly Samuel L. Jackson in The Ultimates 
beginning in March 2002, a fun casting that Jackson liked so much that his wife brought him the concept art to hang on the wall, and that contributed to him accepting his long-running role six years later in that Iron Man movie cameo. The 2008 Incredible Hulk movie posed the question, what if this took place in the same world as that Iron Man movie that you guys just loved so much? Which inadvertently turned the 2003 Ang Lee film into an alternate universe. And like Uatu, Stan the Man Lee prowled the film sets of everything remotely Marvel related, ever pursuing that omnipresent cameo until eventually finding himself literally chilling out with the Watchers in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. So really, this isn't new to mainstream audiences, it's just the first directly, intentionally packaged version of this concept. My absolute bottom episode on this. And there's honestly only two that I really, really don't like. So this is not me shitting on the whole thing. This is just two that just jab me in sensitive areas, which I shall elaborate on. What if Killmonger rescued Tony Stark? The worst episode for me. Initially, I was gripped. Eric ranked as one of the absolute best and most engrossing antagonists in cinema history. A young man forcibly estranged from his homeland, immersed in the savage inequality of America, and forced to endure his father's death at the hands of his own brother, King T'Chaka. Impeccably performed by Michael B. Jordan in 2018's high point of Marvel filmmaking, Black Panther, the chance to revisit Eric alive and well prior to these events and potentially having had different experiences allowing the writers here a chance to deepen and enrich an already fascinating now-dead character. And while I doubt that this will be the last we see of him on the big screen, not least due to the utterly tragic loss of his cinematic counterpart Chadwick Boseman, and what that unexpected horror will do to Wakanda Forever, the follow-up movie, this episode could have laid the groundwork for the recontextualizing of a Shakespearean anti-villain. Instead, they overly simplified him, making Eric a scheming Iago, but not very interesting with it, lacking any internal conflict, disinterested in Wakanda, entirely detached, from his father's death, we never even hear whether it was indeed gang violence like he told Tony Stark or whether that was just another lie. The Wakandan royal family are also easily duped, easily steered into conflict over negotiation and come off as simpletons. Similarly, Tony Stark is not a power set, he's a mind and a heart. And those two things, coupled with Robert Downey Jr.'s intense and multifaceted performance, made for a legendary screen presence for 11 years that sat at the core of the MCU through the messy business of contract renegotiations. You have to understand how fast Tony's mind works, how alert he is, his weaknesses and his strengths in order to accurately convey that version of Stark on screen. What this episode presupposes is, maybe he was just a playboy with some techie ideas and he is summarily murdered in a moment of smug hubris that feels utterly inauthentic. It's a minor crime, they killed a rich white guy, and Stark is indelible in the minds of several generations now. It does, however, underline in red sharpie the disparity of vocal casting in this series. There is a Tony Stark-shaped vacuum at the core. 
our DJ is pretty much impossible to imitate. How to do a Robert Denny Jr. impression? This is a chap on YouTube named Frank Caliendo. First, start by making a list. Second, realize how you made that list. Do the first part of the sentence slowly, pause, then make the second part of the sentence go three times as fast. Oh, and don't forget, emphasize the last syllable of the first part. So if you're counting, it would be one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And thirdly, swallow, like you've got a burp and get some really cool sunglasses. But the guy who plays him in the cartoons that weren't as good as Avengers Earth's Mightiest Heroes has settled into a hollow, unengaging, and dislikable version of someone who previously set the screen aflame. I saw young Americans killed by the very weapons I created to protect them. And we have to do better. Build bigger and fight better. And Lieutenant Eric Stevens, the Navy SEAL who saved my life as Stark Industries' new chief security officer. I'm sure Downey's contract decisions caused him to legitimately distance himself from Marvel for now, and considering what happened recently with ScarJo, who can blame him? However, we all feel that absence, along with that, of Steve Rogers. And while Hemsworth's Thor did turn up, he was so stupid and lacking in emotional weight that he may as well have been voiced by someone completely different for all the correlation that he represented. Phase 4, to date, has not delivered that same centerpiece trio for the universe, and bearing in mind it's early days yet, but Iron Man was early days in 2008. They had to start strong. And what if heightens that lack of foundation? There is nothing on the end of the anchor chain. It should be the trifecta of Doctor Strange, Captain Marvel and Black Panther, philosophically opposing one another on how best to keep this ship running, but due to a multitude of reasons, it isn't. Tony and Steve, in particular, from 2011 to 2019, delivered us a strong contrast between the kinds of heroes we could expect, and their 2016 clash in Civil War remains my favorite of the movies, as it highlights the ethical quandary all of the Avengers must face, as well as introducing my favorite Spider-Man and the stunning debut of Bozeman's T'Challa, who goes through more of an arc in that film than the one named after him. And more disturbing than the betrayal and slaughter of sugar-free Tony by moustache-twirling Eric is his sickening murder of T'Challa shortly beforehand, an event given monumental proportion by both in-world and, more importantly, real-world events. A dispatching of someone of supreme importance so confusingly conveyed and emotionally detached on screen that I didn't even know the prince was dead for a while, and this is where they really fall down. In the tail end of this episode, everything is primed for Eric to realize that his success has come with a terrible cost. For him to reflect on what he has done with his life as he begins to understand Wakanda. We get none of that. Michael B. Jordan's performance was directed to be an audible shrug. Like so many of the vocal performances of this show, even by the original voice actors, it left me craving the expertise of the great Andrea Romano, who would have evoked passion and pain and intelligence from every one of her carefully chosen actors. And while some of the replacements for the celebrities we know do a great job, Lake Bell as Natasha being the standout, the very disparity between mixing established voices with those they had to replace stepped on almost every moment of drama. Because while we should be engaged, we are instead T 
tilting our heads and asking ourselves, is that Mark Ruffalo? It doesn't sound like him. And then we pull out our tablets or our phones and we check the IMDB and apparently it was. This process happened so frequently that the stay-at-home nature of Disney Plus began to really wear down the immersion factor of MCU films. We shouldn't be thinking, that's definitely not Michael Douglas. We should be pondering Hank's experiences that brought him to this place. To that end, it feels like they should have made this whole thing with one clear remit. Bring in voice actors who can do damn good impersonations of these characters or only use characters when the actors who played them are willing and available. Even that imposes real-world pressures on creative decisions, but the alternative is what they did, and what they did is by design antithetical to absorbing drama. And to circle back to Eric, don't worry, I haven't written one of these for every episode. In fact, this one pretty much covers the bulk of what threw me sideways on the show. When this same Eric returns for the season finale and has had time in a now war-torn Wakanda to ponder his actions in a position of power and responsibility, he's still that treacherous, disinterested, audible shrug of a character. He stands three feet away from an alternate universe version of the cousin he actually casually killed and must surely have heard a lot more about from those in mourning who knew T'Challa. And he doesn't express anything. They don't talk. He doesn't feel. This show fails on every level in this instance when this is your conclusion because we, as a discerning audience, cannot invest in characters who themselves are uninvested. In Black Panther 2018, Eric Killmonger was angry and self-righteous and contemptuous and proud and aggressive and deceptive and arrogant and feeling six different kinds of pain as he tore back the throne of Wakanda and avenged his father, and he died before he could re-examine his worldview. But he did so looking out over a land that he realized was sacred, and yet his last words were a bitter refutation of the tyranny of bondage, a misguided warrior who could have healed, but who allowed his fury to lead him to hurt over and over and destroy. Here, he was a shallow plot device. And that is where What If, at its lowest ebb, does the greatest disservice to the world it was supposed to be remixing to tease all sorts of unexpected feelings out of us. It took already prepared materials that were rich and complex, and it made them inordinately simplistic. What it teased out of me was disgust. Does anyone have any thoughts on this one episode before we move on? Because again, I've actually said a huge amount of what I needed to say, and I want to open up the floor. Um, when it came to this one, after my first viewing, aside from how I felt the story just sort of cut off right as it was ramping up, I was actually pretty compelled by this one, but between how it just sort of cuts off and, like you just said, the terrible follow-up in the finale with him where he's just a mustache twirler, mm-hmm. it put it way lower on my overall ranking for this season. It's like, they really had something there, especially, I don't care that they killed him, but like, and like, there's even something interesting there in how the person guiding him out of the trauma in the Middle East is no longer this kindly engineer, but Mm. a warrior. 
someone who themselves also has uh, risen to power through war the same way that Tony did and who encourages him in the wrong directions. Yeah. Yeah. And also, I thought it was kind of cute that, one, there are drones like in Genlock, and two, he mm. trains those drones by shadow boxing, like in Creed. Yeah. Mm. There were some lovely um, el- moments, elements, touches throughout the whole series, and this one was not without them, definitely. When we, when we rewatched the episode, I was struck by the fact that it's not, it's not a... What I want to say is it's not a badly made episode in the sense that the construction is a lot more solid than I remembered it being. The problem is that what it's constructing with is characters made out of tissue paper. Mm. Mm. Estimated poorly. Knowing that you were going to be talking about this and wanting to understand where you were coming from, I have to say, now that you've laid out your case, I didn't dislike this episode, but... Given what what you've been saying about how Eric is completely recontextualized mm. and, as you say, written without the conflict and the pain, I can definitely see where you're coming from. And I was thinking about on oh, these episodes, what, what are the things that I did like about the episodes that I didn't feel strongly about? At the very least, with this episode... I liked finding out that at one point, Ramondo was the general of the Wakandan forces as opposed to Okoye. That brought a context to her above and beyond just the grand old matriarch that uh, Angela Bassett played in the Black Panther movie. Mm. So the idea that once Mm -hmm. upon a time, she was a warrior herself and merely handed that role aside to Okoye as she got too old to continue leading the forces, I thought was a nice touch. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's a pretty good one. I think the the biggest issue that I had with it, aside from what Alex has already summed up, and I, I do agree with him with an awful lot of that, was the fact that T'Chaka and Ramonda, <clears throat> excuse me, were... This this didn't really strike home for me until we rewatched the "What if T'Challa was Star Lord" mm-hmm. episode. The difference in how they reacted to the the death of their son and the fact that they were so willing to be whipped up into a state of desiring vengeance by Eric. Mm. It seemed yeah. so alien to what I knew of them from the film and so contradictory to the version of them that we saw in the What If T'Challa Was Star-Lord episode mm. that my brain basically went, this is this universe is so alternate that I don't need to engage with it at all. And I, I think that threw me out even further, made me less angry at it because I was able to just discount it but meant that I didn't factor it into the overall It cultivated apathy in you. That's dangerous. Mm. Yeah. And there is also, like, we'll get into this as we start talking about more of the episodes, Mm -hmm. but, like, the way the Watcher presents all of these things would be like, okay, what if one thing was different about this world and that sent butterfly effect it tumbling down a different path. The thing that I felt again and again about many of these episodes is that 
there was more than one difference. Mm. Yes. There was. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. We're, Absolutely. I have a lot to say about that <laughs> for some of these. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. There is a notable absence in the members of T'Challa's own inner circle from his movie, which is to say Nakia and Wakabi, yeah. the two people who represent how T'Challa's inner conflict of how Wakanda should interact with the rest of the world. Yeah, very mm. true. Uh, one little detail that they could have easily got wrong. I was like, wow, they've, they've made... Um Shuri looked really young. And I was like, oh, it's like 10 years ago. She would have been this young. Okay, mm -hmm. nice touch. And I love yeah. the fact that she's still a genius, even as a kid. So uh, it, it yeah. had kind of a hopeful ending that led nowhere. <laughs> and she's like, yeah, we're going to solve this together, Pepper. And, and then they solved it together or something. And then the day was <laughs> saved by, oh, I don't know, Mo. It's that. <laughs> Okay, yeah, so. if only there was a spy who could have joined them in to get under from Killmonger, someone like uh, Nakia. Mm -hmm. Okay, so, <sighs> number two, Marvel Zombies. This one will be a lot quicker than the uh, first one I did, and then after that, I have very short things to say. I hate Marvel zombies than I always have. I read Kirkman's book when it came out and I thought to myself that these spiteful, evil creatures bore no resemblance to the heroes we love. If you've ever read it, we start with a lot of, like, almost everyone's dead and now a zombie. So you got, like, Peter Parker, like, wandering around going, oh, my leg fell off, or something, I can't remember. But they're, they're evil. They're like, yes. They're not like dumb, evil brains zombies. They are, like, do you remember Karen, the doctor in the original Blade movie, uh, meets her colleague at the end who's been bitten by vampires and is now kind of feral, but at the same time he can kind of ponder his condition? That, but not in a philosophical interview with a vampire way. More in a kind of, oh, my legs are falling off. Ah, I must feed. He figured he'd turn. Yeah, but he didn't turn, did he? No, he turned into some kind of zombie. It happens sometimes, cutie. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, these guys are complete scum, man. They'll eat anything. Animals, rodents, corpses, and sometimes... They'll even eat vampires. That's a plus. I don't know what's happening to me. No balls. And, of course... Question of lividity. Curtis. Karen. I never thought I would see you again. Tell me, Karen, do you ever have second thoughts about her? And they're possessed of cunning and intelligence, which suggests something of each person still resided in the brain pan, but that's an incongruity heightened by its gleeful murder and dismemberment and desecration of the corpses of heroes and villains alike. The whole thing ends, that just the first like six, five, six issue arc, ends with them chewing on Galactus. Can I just toss this book onto eBay with an ugh? Because Galactus eats worlds already, but he can be negotiated with, bargained with. He considers everything from a loftier perspective. What was done subtracts the complexity and richness imbued into him and the Silver Surfer, who they also ate, 
by Jack Kirby, by Mobius, by the, the, the authors of these books. It's, it's graffiti. And what this episode suffers from, for me, the most, is being tonally confused from beginning to end. The human winter soldier that we have invested in for a decade, James Buchanan Barnes, tears apart the zombie Sam Wilson, a character, I might add, who was absent from pretty much this entire show. Bucky then destroys the carcass of his on-screen buddy and mutters, I know I should feel bad, but I don't. He is then confronted with the ruin that has become of his childhood friend Steve Rogers. Without blinking, Bucky cuts the screaming revenant wearing Steve Rogers' costume in half with his own shield, and because they're on a train, he quips, End of the line, Cap. With a dry cool wit like that, I could be an action hero. From the 80s, in an era when our heroes weren't supposed to feel much at all and were mostly just there for male empowerment fantasies. Thank you, John McClane, by the way, for kind of upsetting that one and, and like, making more of the 80s action hero. I'm with you to the end of the line, pal. Because I'm with you to the end of the line. There's an incalculable amount of weight and integrity to these words, to this principle. It has meaning beyond its origins. And the scowl that this moment elicited from me never left my face after that moment. It deepened with every lame gag that emerged from Scott Lang's head in a jar mouth as he clumsily trampled the utter sadness of this whole ordeal in a way that reductive assessments of every MCU movie would have you believe they balance pathos in their scripts and performances in the cinema. This was like Marvel allowing dudes who hate Marvel movies loudly on the internet every day to write an episode for them. The very term Marvel Zombies refers to those who blindly worship Marvel and won't hear a word said against them. I think it was made up by DC fans. It was even worse. Oh, the irony. It was even worse that Sebastian Stan and Paul Rudd had to actually be there to flatly, unconvincingly, humorlessly, and at times seemingly reluctantly chew out these vocal tidbits. I hate this episode but less than the Killmonger one, because it accurately portrays how wretched and nihilistic the Marvel Zombies stories are, whilst at the same time foolishly attempting to wrest some unearned semblance of hope in a situation delineated very clearly to be hopeless. Zombie Thanos at the end, it's like, okay, well, we're fucked then. We're fucked. We're fucked. Don't even try. We're fucked. The whole thing's fucked. Anyone else want to talk? What if zombies? <laughs> I this was definitely at the bottom of my list as well. And Austin actually when we were talking about this on the Discord, he brought up the term fridge logic. Mm -hmm. Um in terms of like the the stuff that a show or a movie will throw at you that makes sense sort of until you realize that you run out of beer in the fridge. And <laughs> I thought you were talking about fridging there, which they did with every single character. Yeah, but uh, no, no, no. no you're, you're right. It, it does correlate with beer. Yeah, and it's just like, this was one of the episodes that ends up using a lot of fridge logic in terms of, 
wait, okay, so Thanos is a zombie Thanos now. How in the world would the zombies have posed a threat to Thanos at all with five of the six Infinity Stones? That doesn't make any sense. Mm. On top of mm-hmm. the poor characterization that you were already talking about with Bucky and... Just the I am wary they... here, folks. Sorry, I'm sorry to, to interrupt you, Greg, but this is this correlates me saying mm, Tony Stark would have been prepared. He would have put himself in a panic room, so he wouldn't have allowed himself to be killed by Killmonger. Is absolutely the Marvel equivalent of mm, Batman would be prepared for every eventuality, but it does make Tony Stark look like a dumbass. And yeah, I also agree. Like if, if Thanos has got most of the Infinity Gems, no problem with zombies. Yeah, he had no but problem I mean... with Thor. There's definitely fridge logic in some of the episodes that I really liked, but the problem, the, the, the distinction there is, nice. if I'm enjoying the what I'm watching, whether it's a movie or a TV show or whatever it is, hmm. then I'm more willing to overlook the things that don't make sense in my brain. When I'm not enjoying it, and I did not enjoy Marvel Zombies, then all those little tidbits just stand out to me all the harder. Oh, then they become and- plot holes you could drive a truck through. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And between Scott's head in a jar that just made me think of Futurama, mm-hmm. and, like, it's bad enough. It's like uh, they take an effort to be, like, as far as Peter is concerned... They're like, okay, he's quipping jokes because he's trying not to feel the pain of the loss of his aunt and everything else. Maybe that kind of makes sense. Scott should be devastated because his daughter is dead. Oh, yeah. Therefore, his entire behavior is just... I I don't even have words for it. It's It's unintelligibly baffling. Mm -hmm. Well, I was going to say inconsistent, but yeah. (laughs) Uh, we'll, we'll go with yours. It makes it, it, it makes no emotional sense. Like, I'm not even going to start employing logic at this point. When it comes to Marvel Zombies as a concept and the series, it's people seem to be split like right down the middle of it within Marvel fandom, mm. and even split between which volumes of the comic are good. Some prefer the slightly more serious first couple by Kirkman, and some prefer the later ones that that went more into a darkly humorous bent with Fred Van Lenty, but that's the but that's the thing about the humor in this one. It's not dark humor, it's just action movie quips. Mm. And it doesn't fit. Cause despite what Peter does in this episode, this isn't a zombie land fun times sort of hangout romp of a zombie movie. It's an apocalypse. Mm. And it it's meant to feel like an apocalypse and and they're just doing these quips that really don't fit the tone of the setting. Mm. Tone problem was a constant and it was never more stark <laughs> than it was in Marvel's in the Marvel Zombies episode. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. This this one is definitely my least favorite even more so than the Killmonger one because I just I heard the that's the end of the line cap and just tapped out. Mm-hmm. About the only thing that I liked about this episode is that David Dustmation got some more work because after seeing him in the Suicide Squad, oh yeah, I I just I I I want to see anything with him. I had forgotten that he played Kurt in the Ant Man movies, 
And so, therefore, the bringing back of his fascination with Baba Yaga. The Baba Yaga. Yeah. That was the, the only one joke that really worked. But. Because it plays yeah. into the tone. But as far as the rest of it, it's just like, yeah, no, I, I'm tapped out as well. Okay. Let's hope the next episode works better for me. Uh, I mean, it's still a step up. We're climbing the mountain. Number three is what if the world lost its mightiest heroes? Obviously, this is my list. This is not an empirical list of quality. That might be the top or the bottom of anyone else's list. This is an intriguing and engaging episode. So we're away from the shit now. Uh, and it seemed to be giving Natasha a lot to do. And then mm. it killed her. And I hadn't realized how soon it killed her. Like, wait. And... It kills her, her screaming to Nick Fury. It's about hope. Hope, Nick Fury. I've got four seconds to live. I'm going to tell you it's about hope. Even though I'm a very, very intelligent spy, and I know that me saying this sounds like I'm talking about another concept. The only reason a person would do that is to hide a message in there. Like, you know, <laughs> so, so that they can protect someone. Um, but, yeah, anyway, uh, Natasha just gets taken out and I honestly think the culprit turning out to be Hank Pym with maybe the worst reasoning I've seen in a murder mystery my daughter the secret agent died in her line of work just like my wife did now I will murder a billionaire murder the son of the king of Asgard murder a couple of assassins a man with breathtaking anger management issues just to make Nick Fury sad? I mean, if you know the Michael Douglas Hank Pym and can observe the kind of crumpled, angry, but well-meaning scientist he's been characterized at since, as since 2015, you'll probably agree this is dumber than a vat of headless chickens. I like that they gave him the yellow jacket suit. Hank has done mad shit in the comics. He's gone through really dark phases. He beat his wife in one version. Brilliant. Invented Ultron by mistake. He invented a bit, yeah. <laughs> I understand you did trip and put a penny in the jar. And, uh, and yeah, yeah, Hank's done some shit. But like this is, we're in fucking bonkers town now. Just in terms of, oh, you hung the entire episode on that. Okay, then, so it's bullshit. At least it feels believable that Hank could have taken out some of these people because mm. for a while I was just trying to figure out okay who out there at this point in time could have accomplished mm. could have actually killed the Hulk it only makes and sense if they've seen what the Avengers do and want to prevent it like Zemo mm. Yeah. But that's the thing. It makes sense that he could do this. It doesn't make sense that, that he, he would do this. Nice, Lee. Like, there's, a, there's a sort of unspoken red herring in this episode. Like, the early part of this episode definitely wants to make the audience think, oh, it might be Hydra because Brock Rumlow's there and yeah. he name drops Alexander Pierce. Yeah. Yes. Mm. Yeah. It did feel like a Hydra thing going on. And I, and I was like, it, that, when you get to the point, you're like, oh, it was Hank. You, you then maybe flash back to the time you thought it was Hydra and think that would have been so much better <laughs> and then like because then you have them form the Dark Avengers with someone else because then like you get to kind of do a, a what if Hydra had taken out S.H.I.E.L.D. before S.H.I.E.L.D. formed the Avengers it's so much more 
Interesting. I hate using that word, but like there's there's much more that they could have done with this yeah. to elaborate, which they didn't. And again, and then when Loki turns up, it's like, shall we arrange something? Yeah, the tendency of these to fold back in on themselves because ultimately the universe that they've created for the sake of this twenty six minute episode isn't going anywhere. Yeah, yeah. I did, um, however, like the fact that Natasha got plenty to do. Mm-hmm. I liked the the slight but very definitely their development of her relationship with Nick because that is clearly one that is important to her. And like I said to you, the you can tell from the way that Natasha responds to certain individuals and Nick and Clint are the two key ones. She is... She gets emotionally knocked sideways when someone trusts her, even when she's making mistakes. Yeah. Because she's so... And and this is something that's been expanded upon a lot in, in the Black Widow movie. But she is so fixated on the idea that everything she does has to be correct, mm. that it's incredibly deep for her when someone is not insisting on that. Similarly... Samuel L. Jackson's a fucking treasure. He really throws himself into this episode until he becomes Loki pretending to be Nick Fury and then it just falls into bollocks. He is one of the MVPs of this whole series. He plays so many different versions of himself in this and they all feel like this could be an authentic version of Nick Fury. I guess it's because he, he... I can't say it's because... He's so clearly, obviously made Nick Fury a very a fixed point for the universe. That is a really good reason. But then you can't explain Robert Downey Jr.'s uh, Honestly, Tony Stark feeling so off. I think it's got more to do with the fact that his appearances in the other films have been small. Yeah. yeah. He is used to jump in, do a 10, 15 minute version of Nick Fury, jump out again. This is just more of that. Yeah. It's like when I have to write a scene with Catherine, I know how she's going to react. I know what she's going to say. That doesn't make her predictable. Mm. It makes her that, like I said, that fixed point. Yeah. Mm. Sam Jackson as Tom Hiddleston as Loki was one of the most enjoyable bits of the MCU since one of the only universally accepted great parts of Thor The Dark World, which is Chris Evans as Tom Hiddleston, Mm -hmm. as Loki, as Captain America. (laughs) That is a great bit. uh, We we watched the deleted scene, which I included in my re-edit of uh, The Dark World, and then I realised, oh shit, that wasn't like a scene they were going to do. They wanted to give Chris Evans a reference point so that he could imitate Tom doing him. And Tom doing him, let and, the slash fit commence. So, and, um, <laughs> oh, my and sweet summer child, you think that, it hasn't already? Okay, <laughs> the slash fit continue. <laughs> yeah. One of the places I think what ifs strengths lie in this first season is in genre pastiche. Hmm. All the episodes I like a little more, like not including zombies because it's just not a very good zombie story, but most of the ones I like more tend to lean towards a genre pastiche. And this one is the spy thriller murder mystery. And for the most part, I think this one does it pretty well. Like not counting like some of the stuff you've already brought up about Hank's motives being kind of loose. Let's go. Party rockets in the house tonight. Everybody just have a good time. Yeah. And we gon' make you lose your mind. Woo. Everybody just have a good time. Clap. Party rockets in the house tonight. Oh. Everybody just have a good time. 
Number four. What if Thor were an only child? We are now past the terrible episodes, past the bad ones, and we are now into the. This one was just fluff, seemingly written by eight-year-olds, but it was at least fun. I have nothing to say about this one. Go. As I was saying before. One of what if strengths lies in genre pastiche, and this one is the late '70s and '80s frat bro comedy, or like oh, that's why John Hughes. I didn't like John, it. Or like a John Hughes movie where oh. Frigga's the requisite authority figure that Thor doesn't want to be caught by, and she's the bitter, crusty old dean. I do remember saying Sorry. that is not Rene Russo at one point. <laughs> <laughs> actually say the closest comparison to any 80s comedy to this one is Ferris Bueller's Day Off because they actually put Carol in the role of Jeannie Bueller as the person who mm. is there to put a stop to the fun but at the very end like gives the troublemaker a bit of a break. Mm. Yeah. I, get I think that. I think I might like it more the next time I see it. Then with that in mind, my one of the things that I said Quite on the, the Discord one, about it was that I'd, I'd it was fine for the most part. My hackles went up when they kept calling Carol a party pooper because mm. it felt like they like Carol's setup had descended a little bit into she's here to be the mean strict mommy that nobody actually likes she's here to spoil everybody's fun Ew. and i didn't she's like hillary clinton fact, exactly i didn't like the fact that she'd been kind of interpreted that way in the marvel universe as a whole yeah even though that's not really how she behaves in her own movie but that's how what she did was oh, taken she's not by exactly a, a barrel of laughs but, but this is my point i wasn't overly thrilled that that was her umbrella impression mm. and then they seem to be deliberately reinforcing that here but then the ultimate strict mommy turns up at the end yeah. and saves mm, the day right. so that felt a little bit more uh, readjusting the balance maybe if they let um kamala be the the, the the weird one. I really hope so. They can I also. Really that so. means that Carol gets to be the straight man yeah. in that scenario. AC yeah. Bradley's I'm, I'm also doing some. At this point. Yeah. AC yeah. Bradley's also doing some writing on the Miss Marvel show. Oh, good, good. Okay. okay. I didn't like what of zombies, but weirdly enough, this episode got under my skin. Oh, right. In in a way that I I've been trying to figure out how to frame it. Okay. It felt like it required a lot more fridge logic in terms of trying to determine why all these various alien races would get together for a party at all, given the characterization of, I don't even remember, the name of the golden aliens from Volume 2, and the scrolls just sort of hanging out like, oh no, we're not being wiped from the Earth by the Kree, we, we can go to a party, that's no problem. When you put it like and, that, do you know what it reminds me of? Mm. A Lego game. You yeah. know the Lego games yes. that aren't anywhere near as funny as the Lego movies? Yeah. But like, it basically it throws everything at the wall, all of the alien races you might have seen from somewhere, and just be like, let's have a big party. Uh, we'll, we'll throw in the Grandmaster, and I don't remember the name of his uh, his second. The, the normally humorless woman 
is like, no, 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 I'm going to have a, a party and have fun too. Okay, that already throws me out a little bit. And in the meantime, the way that this plays into the final Hold episode... Hold on, we've got to get well, her name before we move too far, uh, too, too far on. It's the name of a jewel, a yellow, yellowish jewel. Um, Topaz? Topaz, that's yes. the one. Okay, yes. Um, and... So this is ostensibly the Thor that the Watcher decides to recruit mm -hmm. and to, in order to be the, the guardians of the multiverse and everything like that. The problem is, based on everything that we had found out about, like, okay, so this version of Thor didn't have a brother, Loki. Apparently, like, didn't actually have a sister that Odin had to worry about or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, I was like, only child? Yeah. Are we forgetting someone? They yeah. didn't forget her hat in a late, an earlier episode, so... And, and in the meantime, it'd be like, oh, but he's still, even though he's a party animal and hasn't been, like, going around and fighting people, like it seemed clear the original Thor had been in... in um, yeah, Thor I mean, he, he, his specific wording is, oh, I've, I've lived a thousand years, I've killed three times as many as that, like, fucking... <laughs> killed you know, 3,000 people! Do you know what actually would have made this make more not, sense? Not in uh, What If, in the MCU. <laughs> Yeah. What would have made this make more sense? Because I really struggled to see, and again, we've said this already, there's so many episodes here where it's like, you're not telling me this was one tiny little change and this is what spiralled out of it. But the I, I couldn't see the lines between Thor is an only child and therefore dot, dot, dot. If Thor were the younger yeah. child, if Loki was the older, and Loki had been being groomed to be the king of Asgard... Groomed? It, that's, that's what it is. Um, <clears throat> but if that had been the, the purpose of... We were both born of, to be king, but mainly Loki. Yeah. If that had been <laughs> the purpose of Loki's existence, then Thor would have been allowed to go off and be a younger prince as much as he wanted. Yes, but we've seen what Thor's like when he's at party. Exactly. So Another! That, <laughs> That would have made a lot more sense to me than this, which didn't. It was fine, like you say, it was fluff, but I couldn't factor it into any bigger pictures. Also, when you let Chris Hemsworth improv, he's fucking funny. We saw that in Ghostbusters. Scripts, he's he's not. not funny. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah. That, that is one of the, the appreciable aspects of this episode, is that it continues to allow... Um, Hemsworth to, to do his comedy bit, which he clearly loves doing. More power to him. It's just, as far as this is concerned, it felt like whoever wrote this would be like, we want to have a party episode, so we're going to work backwards from that and be like, uh, what's the explanation? Oh, uh, Loki wasn't a part of Thor's life in the same way. Sure. Rush printed. Yeah, I don't know. I guess also, I just yeah. He would have hooked up with Darcy, not Jane. Jane is mm, attracted yeah. to him because of his serious moments, not because of his silliness. He that being willing over the that top for his Bueller to type. Jane would have run a mile from. Oh yes, I'd be wenching that, with Darcy. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> like um, what Greg just said about working backwards. It's like that's the other side of the genre pastiche part of this show and it's why I wanted to use 
this episode to sort of establish that as an aspect of this series. I love the fact that you invoked Ferris Bueller there and then he gets, like, given uh, you are one of the people who can save the multiverse. It's taking Ferris Bueller and putting him in war games. And <laughs> Ferris go, I really... I, I, I shouldn't be here. I have a computer, but I just programmed it to change my grades. I don't know how to do any of this stuff. I'd like to go I home. I want to go home. <laughs> <laughs> ah, he knows the only way to win is not to play. Yes. Okay, number five. What if Ultron won? This episode was so bland that I can barely remember it. All I recall is how the Ultron voice actor didn't sound at all like James Spader, even though a lot of people say that he did. It it did okay. I it, The voice didn't throw me out completely. Uh, I would say that based on the previous episode setting up, oh, there's an Ultron out there and he apparently has the Infinity Stones, doesn't follow at all because supposedly... Ultron only became aware of the fact that there is a multiverse because Uatu was watching the events play out on his world. Mm. So now him being mm-hmm. surprised by this by Ultron showing up doesn't make any sense. One of those log- plot holes you could drive a truck through. <laughs> Again, if it was more engaging with the that, I think we're supposed to assume that Uatu is sort of Dr. Manhattan ish but that makes mm. it make even less sense mm. oh that he can watch multiple things at a time or that yeah okay that he has a weird yeah. understanding of yeah. he has a weird experience with how time works like, like this episode makes it seem like he's usually operating in the dr manhattan sees everything all at one sense and ultron's looking back at him knocks him out of that mm. Mm. I, I think it re- reminded me that uh, the fourth Marvel vs. Capcom game actually featured this as a concept. The big boss is Ultron with all the gems. And mm. that's the one that everybody hates. It's got a terrible, uh, like the, the actual art presentation is terrible. Like if you look at Chris Redfield, he's so ridiculously beefy that if you coloured him green, it would be like, okay, so the Hulk looks all right. And then you look at the Hulk and he's like a testicle with teeth. <laughs> <laughs> the, the thing I remember about this, that the and again, this is the thing about fridge logic hooking you up in things that don't really matter and shouldn't inform upon your interpretation of the episode, but sadly do, was that I got so stuck on the fact that Ultron, having been built an artificial body, looked a certain way. Then he <clears throat> bent over backwards and went out of his way to get the vibranium synthetic uh, vision body and then we know as vision gave himself, then yeah. created himself armor <laughs> that made him look exactly like he was before because otherwise you lose that it's Ultron <laughs> everyone's like why is vision being evil so and why does he not sound like either vision or Ultron if you wanted to keep looking like this why not just get a, a vibranium version of the body you had before made mm. that doesn't make any sense did he have a cape no, no, seriously. And funny that he has a cape here because the only reason Vision has a cape was he sees Thor's and he's like, yeah, I'd like one of those. That's it. That's mm. it. I, I was like, I reckon my brains are going, how much of Vision is there at this point? Knock it! <sighs> okay. A- any more of this episode? Uh, obviously, this is the two-parter and I've, uh, I've arranged them chronologically because the next one's the next part. Yeah, well, most of what I'd have to say about this is 
more related to how it pays off so okay i mean we can move on to that and we can you can jump back to the last one if if you like and that in Mm. the interest of brevity uh number six is what if the watch by the way props to jeffrey wright for owning uatu a character Mm. who has been traditionally white the whole way through and i haven't heard peep one from anyone saying jeffrey wright's not good enough and they made the uatu (laughs) a watcher of color he's great and I actually like his narrating voice. It is a steadying influence. Mm, yeah, absolutely. So uh, number six, what if the Watcher broke his oath? This is notable for highlighting an episode that they didn't manage to make all about Gamora. Maybe it was, what if Gamora wasn't kidnapped, gaslit, abused, used as a weapon, and then killed off? Well, that could have been about one or two other Marvel females this is the grand finale tying everything together and i feel like the music and direction was actually the biggest failing here because we have a direct comparison in the form of endgame um Mm. willow noticed how we should all be feeling climactic emotional peaks and by and large we didn't Uh, although this one really highlighted what a great voice actress Lake Bell is. She's Poison mm-hmm. Ivy in the Harley Quinn cartoon. We are going to do a show on that at some point. It is a fucking fantastic series. And her Natasha Romanoff was often more engaging than Scarlet, especially as unlike ScarJo, she was given material that allowed her to become justifiably and visibly angry. Yeah, I I definitely have to agree that Lake Bell's Natasha was a standout which is part of the reason that made the fact that she was she was the last surviving avenger of the previous mm-hmm. world mm-hmm. and that she then gets to have a form of a happy ending by being brought to a world that needs someone that like her mm-hmm. that needs her in particular to bring fury and that back together i i worry that Natasha was killed in that previous episode specifically to have this Natasha have a world to go to but the moment works as near as I can tell and everything between Captain Britain and should be you have it written down as Captain Britain technically it's Captain Carter but all the moments between Peggy and Nat work so well for me that it's just like, yes, okay, we're getting to see how the beginning of Winter Soldier would have played out if it was Peggy and Nat. And I was like, yes, okay, I'm totally there. I'm on board. And then it go, oh, so we're going back to the stuff that I don't really care about as much. Okay, fine. Yeah. It it did underline for me that this is a that there are versions of Natasha out there that are better than the MCU version. Whoa. Mm. The fact yeah. that that they have there are stories in the in the comics particularly but in other places as well in That's my just uh, hero. She was really heroes, good. Yeah. She was very good at doing things on her own. Yes. Nat in the MCU was a follower. Absolutely. And it it it, it emphasized for me and really made it feel like when you take this particular character who who can and is capable of being a standout if she's written well and you put her with a group, specifically a group of blokes, the deal is she has to stand at the back and be a team player and is not allowed to step forward and show what she's capable of. And that, 
I was really quite frustrated by because it made me a bit pissed off with some of the MCU movies that we've already mm. had. Carol's allowed to, <laughs> but Carol's not taking part in anything. Exactly. She's off doing other Carol's things. Carol's off saving worlds, but we don't get to see any of it. <laughs> Fuck's sake. It's, it's gotten bad enough that they're even making jokes about it now at the end of Shang-Chi. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I, yeah. I did like the implication that, that the pieces in the multiverse, um, multiverse universe, that doesn't make any sense, the pieces in the multiverse can move around. So if you have a world that collapses and somebody escapes from that, they can end up being somewhere else where there is a them-shaped hole. Orphaned. Yeah. Indeed, yeah. and and this is speaking my language, or, by the, the way. The idea or of bringing exiles, those, yeah, or exiles. Exiles, yeah, that's the yeah. comic with Blink in it. That, Absolutely, uh, yeah, that's and, pretty and much the, exactly that. The concept of bringing those loose threads together and making them into something which is plaited and connected mm. and now more whole than it was before is one that really appeals. A to lot me. of it, like at the early stages, we were like, "Oh, this is going to lead up to like." And I suggested, like, maybe they're doing, if they just did just, like, it's a what-if, but there's lots of what-ifs all in one universe, and they all contribute to a version of events that's that's wildly different, but there's still a big finale. And because they've all happened in the same place, we've super-invested over the time. Mm. But they didn't do that at all. Kind of yes, but no. Mm. And then mm. they kind of split the difference and drained all the impact out. And also, because I flatly do not trust Disney over the water cooler thing, mm-hmm. it felt a little bit like we're going to throw all of this popcorn at the pan, we're going to see what pops, and if anything does, maybe we'll do a little bit more with it. That's exactly Don't what it is. Don't let your audience write your scripts. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's just consequences, and it doesn't go anywhere. It was Mephesto all along. <laughs> <laughs> oh god yeah that's the answer to everything now it's all fucking Mephisto, Mephisto. that actually brings the characterization of the watcher in these last two episodes kind of front and center because I, I don't know enough about how he's characterized or how the watchers because there's more than one of them are characterized in the comics mm. but in this particular case it seems clear that Uatu is meant to be a stand in for the audience of the MCU or the MCU TV in this particular case, yeah. particularly highlighted in how uh, in the previous episode uh, they're searching around for the information that will lead them to Zola, and then Clint gives up. It's like, but no, no, it's it's right there. It's literally you just have to stand up. <laughs> that felt like the kind of thing that the audience would be doing yeah. in in movies and TV shows and stuff that like that. correlates him, especially with his world-hopping, universe-hopping um, yeah. antics with Kang. Mm. Like, Kang, mm. Kang is closest to a Watcher yeah. in terms of yeah. what he became. But I do feel like that maybe become. would have been better... Better, question mark. Better portrayed, although maybe a little more frustratingly, if the way they'd set him up was he watches these worlds because he is emotionally engaged with them, Mm. but he literally can't do anything to change them. Not he's not allowed to, Mm. that he literally Mm. physically can't. If you could do make some changes in a brief amount of time, that's a possible worthy idea. If you have infinite time to make infinite changes, the possibility of you fucking absolutely everything drops to everything. Just hundred yeah, percent. Because here's the thing, when you're looking or raises to hundred percent. When you're looking at the big picture, 
Think about the God concept when you're writing, when you're you're, uh, creating a a new world. When you're looking at the big picture, you can take in everything. When you zoom in to a detail to change it, what's going on outside those details is now outside your, your attention because you cannot look at the big picture and the small picture at the same time. You can do both, but you have to swing back and forth between the two. It's the mental equivalent of a magic eye. Yeah, exactly. And while while Uatu is engaging himself with fixing the small details, it's entirely possible that other bigger stuff mm. that he has taken his eye off is going to go horribly wrong because of his meddling. Yeah. Number seven. What if T'Challa became Star-Lord? This one was much more emotional than they intended. It highlighted the differences between a lazy, uninspired, shallow man and a determined diplomat, a people person, Mm -hmm. excellent at negotiation, who knows the value of life and respects others. It made me sad in a way I cannot articulate that this was the beginning of the farewell to Chadwick Boseman, a man I don't think I will ever stop admiring or mourning. This whole show is gorgeously animated, and this and Doctor Strange, I think, have some of the best animation period in the whole season. Absolutely agreed, yeah. A lot of this is me bringing how much the Guardians movies mean to me, but Mm. I feel like this episode sort of downplays the trauma of some of those characters. Like When it comes to Nebula and... Thanos didn't get to go as far with her in this timeline, but he still tore her eye out. Mm-hmm. And T'Challa expects to get her to to build a new bond with him because he gardens now. And the extent of what kind of person Yondu was up until the very last moments of his life in the main timeline is Mostly unspoken, we don't hear word one about the other Ravager factions or what they think of this timeline's Yondu. Mm. Did anyone want to eat T'Challa? <laughs> <laughs> that was just fun and Which, like, yeah. Yeah, like, like, Peter's not the way he is just because he's Peter. He's like that because of what he went through immediately after losing his mother. A point of arrested development and T'Challa mm-hmm. can move forwards while Peter can't. Yeah, yeah, that is true. This is a version of T'Challa that didn't experience the same things that the MCU version of T'Challa did. He still has all of his optimism and is inspired and is apparently able to inspire others as a result. Yeah. And that's all very heartwarming. But 
as as mentioned before, the fridge logic is still there in terms of, oh, we've made Thanos into kind of like, yeah, you know, he still wanted to kill half the universe at one point, but he's a Ravager now and he makes jokes so good. Yeah. I like the idea that there's a universe where someone sat him down yeah. and went, you have to understand about resource management and actually talked him round. <laughs> and if anyone could do it, T'Challa could. could yeah. it, it weirdly... Peter, and I, I said this earlier today, Peter, yes, is the way he is because he experiences a moment of grief and then he is ripped away from the world that is so far all he's ever known. Mm. T'Challa is pulled away and then is told that the entire earth has been destroyed mm. and everybody he knows is dead and he can never go back to it. That's, so it almost yeah. feels like the reason T'Challa is able to become who he then becomes in this universe, i.e. somebody who is engaged with it and is in the right place at the right time and is able to tweak all of these events that happened in in the period in which Peter grew up, is exactly because he has been able to let go of what was behind him. As opposed to Peter Quill, who uh, wound up on Earth unexpectedly after all those years and went, let's get back on a spaceship and fly away and not do any investigating. Indeed. It honestly makes me wonder, like, at what point he wanted to go back mm. in, you know, he must have yeah. been an adult at this point. Yeah. Because relaying this entire experience made me think of someone else who couldn't save the one person that meant the most to them mm. and what that ended up doing to her, Gwen, and in into the Spider-Verse. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, now she saves everybody else but she can't allow herself to get close to anybody. That's not what happened here with T'Challa. He yeah. is going around and saving everybody else, but he hasn't somehow lost his, that spark that makes everybody attracted to him. As a uh, character, he's fucking flawless, though. Like, mm. there's, there's nothing to him that's a weakness. Mm. Uh, and um, yeah, we, I'm sure, would have seen more of that developed over time mm. if he'd stuck around it, it's almost like all it requires is for everyone else to go listen to this guy he's, he's talking complete sense and it's really just everyone else catching up to him I, I, I'm fine with that like if, if they're going to do that with one character and one mm -hmm. person mm -hmm. let's just let give them that one I, I also want to add uh, before we move on that nothing made me happier in this episode than listening to Jimon Hansu mm. play a very different <laughs> yeah. version of Korath. Nerd girl out. Absolutely. I loved that bit. A Korath that's an actual character. Yeah. <laughs> Such a yeah, thing exactly. has never been done. Also, like, did, did anyone see what happened to Ronan? Because he's like the big party pooper, and I feel like... He's mentioned at the start and then just... Never again. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I, I, like, I feel he's like... He's not going after Korath or anything. Yeah. It just... A lot of lies. They, they mention a Cree yeah. invasion having been thwarted. It's entirely mm. possible he just got killed long ago. Okay. Uh, also, I really loved seeing Nebula playing a femme fatale, and uh, the uh, the idea of calling him Cha Cha, Karen Gillan's idea. Yeah, it's interesting hearing Karen Gillan's. Uh, voice that she uses for Nebula without it being modulated the way it is in yeah. the regular movies. Uh, yeah, she, she spoke completely different, like, as opposed to just this all the time. Like, she she was really chill. And it just made me wish Gamora was in that one more. And obviously now we know Gamora I, had her own thing going on. And it's like, we 
can yeah. get rid of Gamora. What's this Marvel Zombies thing you're talking about? Kids in, will love that. In their defense, yeah. they didn't get rid of it for any uh, narrative yeah. COVID got in the they way. They just couldn't yeah. finish the production on it. Yeah. Fucking COVID. Okay. What if Captain Carter became the first Avenger? This one ranks second highest for me because it straight up delivers a brand new version of a character who could absolutely hold her own movie. Fans of Peggy Carter, like ourselves, have been waiting to see her shine for years. And while the structure was as streamlined as the first Avenger movie, uh, more so obviously because they packed a lot into that short running time, it was delivered with such flair and joy and unexpected Hellboy-style diesel punk sensibilities that it gave me unreasonably lofty expectations for the rest of the series. The only thing that I would change... Aside from just making this the third series of Agent Carter and just going on, just like this is the first episode, that was the pilot, let's move on, is the name. She's Captain Britain. If she isn't, why did you slather her in the Union Jack? And I definitely don't mean that as a neurotic, overreaching patriotism kind of way that our nation is known for. England, Steve managed to get through his whole run, remaining invested in the best that America could be, rather than beating his chest over making it great again. Peggy should have been Captain Britain of the Allies with her howling commandos. And yeah. folks can send whatever rationalizations my way if you know I'm right. There are, the only non-Thermian argument answer is that Marvel wanted a brand new IP and wanted to keep Captain Britain for later. And I get it. Yeah. Everyone now knows who Captain Carter is, and I'm sure we'll see her again. It was never really clear to me how much loyalty Peggy had. I mean, she was tasked to, uh, in the first Avenger, from the SAS, I guess. But Queen the way that she was. Yes, exactly. But the way that she went on to work for uh, the Americans in the organization that would eventually go on to become shield hmm. sort of guess implied to me that maybe she didn't have all that much internal patriotism. Yeah. She's kind of an expat, comes. which yeah. is a word that was made up by people who hate immigrants. Didn't want to call themselves yeah. immigrants. Yeah. I, I think she, she feels in this and I honestly think giving her the union flag all over her stuff. It is called the union flag. Yeah. They only call it the Jack when it's actually attached to a ship. Um, actually, Frankenstein <laughs> was the creator, not the mom. Look, I know. If, I wasn't going to say If it. in 99.999% of times it's used, it's called the union Jack. Jack wrongly, it's no longer right. I know, I agree. Same as saying 480p is standard definition. That is substandard I definition. Agree. Standard definition yeah. is high definition, and high definition is 4K. I agree completely, but I am in the habit of calling it the union flag. There's some repugnant the shit. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> anyway, the fact that she is covered in it, mm -hmm. but she's obviously working for an American organization, mm. makes her feel a bit more stepped sideways from the whole national battle thing mm. which given that we haven't really gone mega cosmic yet except for the squid thing the um, squid thing the squid thing describing Cthulhu <laughs> <laughs> and it was a squid thing it was thing. a squid thing it had some tentacles 
Um, it, it makes it feel like she's somebody who would end up working for something like Interpol or the UN or something that with a with a bit more reach than something mm. that's that's definitively American. I am Peggy Cotto of, of Interpol. Interpol. <laughs> oh, the things I have seen. <laughs> I worked for the resistance. They threw my printing press into the river. <laughs> If there's one thing I'll say about this episode, I'm going to bring it back to the genre pastiche Mm -hmm. of it all. I did not realize how much I'd missed that Joe Johnson Mm. rocketeer tone Mm -hmm. of the first Avenger until I saw this episode. Absolutely. Absolutely. And one of the things I I love the fact that they made her huge. She's a giant woman. (laughs) She towers over Nat because they made her accurately Scarlett Johansson sized. Yeah, and I love the fact that that emphasizes how Steve saw her from the beginning. Because to Steve, when he was little Steve, she was massive. Steve becoming her Bucky Mm -hmm. made perfect sense. Yeah, yeah, and also Also I love how it emphasizes the circular nature of the impact that those two have had on one another. <laughs> Steve inspired Peggy, Peggy inspired Steve, and both of the journeys that they ended up taking in the MCU that we know, though they were separate from each other, they were eternally kind of integrated. That pissed me off, actually. At the very, very end, yeah. Uatu's like, go through the door, Peggy, and she's like, hmm... Don't you think I deserve just a bit of a break yeah. and uh, and Don't ve- I deserve a happy ending? A happy ending. Then then yeah. he pretty much drop kicks her through the door and then shows Nat a world with Steve Rogers alive and it's like you don't think you could have shown Peggy Carter that just to give her peace of mind, <laughs> you cruel bastard. Mm. Yes. I mean, Watu may also know that apparently her version of Steve is in fact still alive mm. and that she'd find that out in due course. I'm, I'm sort of worried that they're going to come back to that and it's going to turn out that in this universe, instead of Bucky, it was Steve and the Hydra Stomper that was mm. Hydra's right arm. Yeah, that makes uh, sense, actually. It gives Peggy some great drama. Mm. Yeah. Now, I'm, I'm actually genuinely excited for season two when you say that. If you don't mind, I'd actually like to get into the backstory of Captain Carter a bit and why it was... Captain Britain. Yeah. Yes, sorry. Um, the reason why... The story Captain Britain is way more complicated. That brings in whole different multiverse stuff. Yeah, we're going to need Excalibur <laughs> on this one. <laughs> <laughs> the reason why I was excited for What If way back when, immediately when I found out that Peggy took up the shield, mm. there's a bit of a story behind that. Okay. My big um, guilty pleasure is a match three puzzle game called Marvel Puzzle Quest. That was just one of those mobile games to be like, yes, we're going to get you with microtransactions and everything. I haven't been able to put it down. But Mm -hmm. during one of the Captain America anniversaries, Mm -hmm. someone basically came up with the idea, what if Peggy Carter was Captain America instead? And they created a new character specifically for that game. It got so popular, this new version of Peggy, that Saladin Ahmed, one of the best writers for Marvel right now, decided to include this version of Peggy in his new Exiles comic. Again, bringing it back around to this concept of, you know, like Guardians of the Multiverse and everything like that. Mm-hmm. 
if you haven't read those comics, it's some amazing stuff. No less because it also includes the Tessa Thompson version of Valkyrie. Who was very and, absent from this. Yes, and exactly. has the art of Javier Rodriguez, who is just the absolute peak of people doing art for Marvel right now. It's not even a contest. Okay. And in the meantime, seeing, uh, seeing that version of Valkyrie hook up with uh, Peggy Carter's version of Bucky and sort of a lesbian romance is one of the most adorable, heartwarming things you will ever read about. Okay, last one. What if Doctor Strange lost his heart instead of his hands? And the best, I must confess, I have saved for the last. And that's because this story could have been Doctor Strange 2. That's how good it is. It feels entirely in keeping with every character involved in the process. Though it robs Christine Palmer of agency, that's now dismally par for the course for Marvel and they need to do better. There is a great tragedy at its core. Time travel is almost always inherently a selfish act. Jesse Ferguson has said that, and he's right. Almost always inherently a selfish act. Time travel. And it's one that I explored this year with Jesse's help, writing a whole book about it. And that book contained a similar universal constant that our heroes keep unsuccessfully trying to undo. I get it. I get why Stephen behaves like this, and I can see where his sorrow spills over into obsession, and he becomes a cautionary tale for all of us in what feels like a very classic story, like classic, classic novel story, like, like one of the Bronte sisters could have written this. Cumberbatch acted amazingly through the animation. He's got Grinch experience, so it's not the first time for him. He played a dragon that one time. I was just gonna say, yeah. yeah. The visuals were beautiful and terrifying. The finale is devastating. And the fact that they had the guts to end the quiet, sad, tragic way they did and to leave people shocked and unsettled, that end of the world, I think that's the most frightening end of the world I've ever seen because it was just everything's quiet and slowly bleeding black upwards and no one's screaming or running around because everything's just stopped. That was fucking nightmare inducing. And the fact that they had the guts to do it felt both earned and something of the ilk I want to see in future because it felt authentic, because we invested and it made me ache. And it was worth this whole dumb project to get this and Captain Britain onto the screen. Everything you've just said is absolutely correct. This episode is overall fantastic. There's a butt coming but, here. <laughs> but this is one of the biggest cases of... This is not one tiny change... Thing. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a huge thing. Him and Christine were dating at that point in time. Yeah. That's the universal <laughs> constant, and they never the in any way addressed the fact that our Doctor Strange had a had a different experience, or yeah. why. My I, I felt like they were leading up to a scenario where he and would well, change things in that direction, and they didn't, but I'm still kind of fine with that. While also implying that the events of his own movie more or less happened exactly the same in that quick montage at the start. The way that I interpreted that is that the the constant for the multiverse 
at least for all the multiverses where Stephen Strange needs to become the Sorcerer Supreme. Mm. And the only circumstances where that wouldn't happen is that there's a universe somewhere where there is somebody else available who would be able to do that role. How about Mordo? Indeed. But yeah, the, the, all those years on the sling ring. <laughs> the constant for me was that to become the Sorcerer Supreme, to have the motivation to become the Sorcerer Supreme, he had to have something that meant more to him than anything else and have it taken away. Yeah. And therefore he is driven to learn because he wants to fix that thing. Mm. Now in the MCU version that we are familiar with, he and Christine had already split up because they had a relationship. It's just that by the time we met mm -hmm. them, it had ended. Mm. And yeah. the, and he had therefore put all of his um, all of his devotion, all of his love, all of his self had gone into his hands and his surgical career, and therefore in that universe, that was the thing that had to be taken away from him. It was self love and an obsession with control, which still Absolutely. surfaced. Which, uh, it's and that is still there. That need to fix is what drove him to learn in the first place. It's the thing that gets him on the path to becoming the Sorcerer Supreme. And it's what his good half says to his dark half during their fight at the end. Exactly, and and it would appear that 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 negative quality if you like because that drive to have to fix things can be insanely destructive if it's if it's mishandled the fact that in this version of the universe he and christine were still together and therefore she was the thing that he had to lose for me that was the one thing that was different mm. hmm. i'm more or less on board although it also makes me wonder christine was turned off by certain aspects yeah. of Stephen's personality. What was mm -hmm. different about this world that made her want to stay with him? It he was less smug me. about music. It's like, like <laughs> this, they give Christine the action movie wife flashback in this one. Mm -hmm. In the whole, this is my shirt now thing. Like, like that is the lighting, the camera angle of action movie dead wife flashback. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's very true. This is uh, the ultimate my dead family. He ends the fucking universe. Yeah. Like, mm. Thanos got nothing on Strange. Mm. But that's the thing. Because we like him, and, and, and I feel like I really want to see Strange carried on forwards into the MCU. Just, like, keep him going. Like, if Benedict's okay with that, because... Like he can get old and be this quiet presence in the background. Yeah, he's he is a, a fixed point that, as you say, they have lost. Mm. And the, the the idea of like a, a a teacher figure that you can go to to say mm. I've got some bad things going on. It's to do with magic. I have no idea what the hell. And you know, obviously, we'll see coming up in two rather important movies, both containing yeah, multiverses. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But um, but yeah, like, this just made me care more about Stephen Strange and 
it was just great to see everyone acting in 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 a way that I, I feel was consistent. Wong's behavior and like trying to help uh, like Steve fix it while his head's bleeding upwards into black goo and not panicking because he's a fucking professional. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I loved about this was that we also get to see a version of Strange, which is not our Strange, but it is not the the main strange from this episode either Mm. and i actually felt that encapsulated the multiverse concept really well yeah because these two men who fuse are both versions of this universe where he was with christine and they maintained the relationship Mm. and she was the thing that they lost rather than the hands Mm. but that stephen in those long dark nights of the soul where they were staring at the Eye of Agamotto thinking, we can fix this, that Stephen decided, no, I'm not going to do it. And therefore he is, although we don't get to learn much about him because it's such a short episode, Mm. you're absolutely right that this could have made a a Doctor Strange It's the logical conclusion or the logical progression of a character who gets given the ability to travel through time. Eventually they're going to hit a point where they keep meddling. Absolutely. But that means that this version of Strange that we get to spend this tiny little bit of time with, he's a better man than the version of Strange that we have in the MCU. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One has to wonder if the entire reason why... um, Strange Supreme, as it's referenced in the um, cast chart there, Mm. the reason why he is redeemable, the reason why Uatu feels comfortable calling on him, even after he's absorbed all of these... The word comfortable is doing a lot of heavy lifting there. (laughs) (laughs) He'll do it, because the multiverse is at stake, but he's not like, hey, how's it going, darkest thing ever? Right. right, but the other thing is that he's also not the danger mm. that Uatu has to work around. It ends up being Eric in that final episode. Mm. This Stephen has lost everything, but more significantly, the darker aspect has absorbed the lighter aspect, yes. and that might have fundamentally changed oh. him enough mm. that bloody And this is like this is investing guilt. over multiple episodes. This is a strength that the series did not capitalize upon mm. yeah it's it's the thing that marvel's been so good at for so long the moment they fly like, off track and go one shots it like, doesn't it, quite work certainly not every is, time sometimes this, it's just great fun this either needed to be more of an anthology or more of all one story yeah yeah the thing that this that what if kept reminding me of was love death robots like someone looked at that on the Disney side and be like, I want a show like that. Let's go with that. And that would explain some of the weird tonal stuff going on there because it bounces between darker stories and funnier stories. And even a few of them that actually managed to combine the darkness with the humor. Um, but working, trying to bring that with the characters that we've seen from movie after movie uh, over the last ten years, do- it doesn't work the same way. You can't. You, Our you bullshit can't... alarms go off much quicker. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mm. I think that's going to be all from us on what if for the time being. We can all hope that the- it's all about hope. It's about hope. <laughs> like once it's you Hank Pym. That that's part of the theme. It's like you'll notice how much it comes up in 
every episode, not even just the ones where they're shouting it. Mm. Mm. Okay, but like uh, you can un- you can devalue that word if you say it enough. Like the word yes. family in fucking Fast and Furious. Now, when I hear the word family used in a fucking commercial, it just kind of gets my hives going. I'm like, yeah, you're you're weaponizing that as a concept, and like with, it's no, Disney. What the fuck? Of course they they're gonna do that. But we can all hope that the next season that comes along, they will have listened to similar criticisms of the weaker aspects and tightened up their mission statement, perhaps. You can also pretty much guarantee a presence from one Wade Wilson. School of Movies is funded by Patreon, allowing us to bring you each week the best show we possibly can. And our $15 sponsors get a shout out each episode, so thank you to Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alex Outridge, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Duran Barnett, Finn Barnicol, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clayson, Joe G, Josh Waster, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Mark Luksh, Marty Huey, Matthew A. Siebert, Matthew Webb, Michael Hasco, Robbie Crow, Sarah Montgomery, Tim Brzezinski, Timothy Green, Toby Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. Before we oh, go, can push. our guests... Tell the folks at home where they can find the stuff that you say online. We will start with Greg. Uh, as always, you can find me with the estimable Toby Skeels Jungius doing our thing weekly on Through the Window, where we get to talk about our favorite piece of media that has never disappointed us, the New Century Multiverse. Oh, God, the pressure. <laughs> Uh, you put more pressure on yourself than uh, I could ever do. But we are rounding up our look at Arlington. And very soon we are not only going to be tackling the enormous steam heart in terms of this is just going to take us month upon month covering all the various aspects of the longest New Century Multiverse book to date. But Ever. I'm top- never going to make one as big as that. It nearly <laughs> killed me. Uh, But on top of that, now that Stone String Maidens is coming to a close as episodes are being released on that podcast feed, we're going to get to have a little fun with all of the voice actors Mm. talking about this in our own inestimable way about the uh, -the behind-the-scenes stuff on the latest, greatest entry in the New Century Multiverse audio dramas. Looking forward to that one because Stone Spring Maidens has been a delight from week to week. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Uh, so, uh, Austin, where can folks find uh, what you say online? Most of what I say online is in my writing, and I mainly write in two primary places. Uh, one, I'm a frequent contributor to the film book club at synapse.co called two cents Uh, they're doing their trick-or-treat series right now and that's always one of my favorite times to write because i spend so much of my life avoiding horror movies that i love (laughs) that i've been loving the experience of 
digging through and seeing everything I've missed throughout my life. The writing I do on my own is on Tumblr at Wits Writing. That's W-I-T-S hyphen writing dot Tumblr dot com. If people want a taste of what I can do and want to see what I have to say when I'm talking about a much more consistent Marvel <laughs> animated series, back in the lead up to Avengers Endgame, I decided to do a daily episode-by-episode recap and breakdown of Avengers Earth's Mightiest Heroes. Mm -hmm. And that was very much my steam heart. I'm never doing anything that big again. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that is a sprawl. It's only two seasons, but there's so much they pack into that. Yeah. And and I plan to have something special for Halloween on my own blog, hopefully sooner rather than later. Interesting you mentioned the uh, animated series. Um, with with the absence of RDJ and the although the guy who played young um, thin Steve did actually a pretty good job. Like he didn't. Josh Keaton, the voice of Spider-Man from Spectacular Spider-Man. Well, he did a pretty good job. It felt like. Do you remember Avengers United We Stand? Henry. Where'd he go? Perhaps he did not go anywhere. You mean he kept on shrinking? Everyone stop. Don't make a move. Oh boy. I hope that's a piece of gum. Oh, oh God. Anybody? It's it's a cartoon from the early 2000s. And it begins with Hank Pym... Yeah, so youngish, like he's uh, about Scott Lang's age, um, with Wanda looking up at statues of Captain America, Iron Man, and Thor, and going, "Ah, oh, gosh darn it, I'll never be as good as Captain America, Iron Man, and Thor. And Wanda, or maybe it's uh, Wasp, uh, Janet, going, oh, come on, Hank, you'll be just as good a leader as Steve Rogers, Tony Stark, or Thor. And it's kind of like, that's phase four right now. <laughs> Fuck. That was the first place I ever saw the Avengers, and I actually really liked it when I was little, and I revisited it when I was in college, and it does not hold up in the slightest. (laughs) Like, like, I can at least get some fun out of the melodrama of, like, X-Men the Animated Series and Spider-Man the Animated Series. Avengers United They Stand is terrible. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's it's grabbage. But, I mean, like, by comparison, if you watch all of that, and then watch What If, What If Ain't Half Bad. (laughs) (laughs) And that is all from us this week. Next week, we begin our Halloween spooktacular featuring Candyman, Castlevania, and Interview with the Vampire. On the Patreon as well, we are going through the Halloween movie franchise. We're talking each week about movies in that series that we haven't yet talked about. So that is four, five, six, 12, depending on if I get to see it, and the most messed up one that nobody has seen, Halloween 3 Season of the Witch. Check for those on Netflix, by the way, folks. I just looked, and we've been watching them in terrible quality. We could have seen them in gorgeous HD. <laughs> but as you pointed out, <laughs> Halloween 3 kind of needs to be seen in the crap. I mean, they are quality. grotty and grubby yes. and like... Ugh. Anyway. There are some movies that actually pay from that... VHS quality, yeah. honestly. Yeah, I suppose. Like uh, sometimes, if you see them in in pristine I, picture, like something's wrong things. here. <laughs> After Jamie runs away from Michael Myers, thinking that Rachel is now dead, uh, it turns out Rachel is not dead, and they get in a truck 
and they drive. And they uh, then Michael Myers was somehow clinging to the truck. He kills a bunch of dudes, and then she ends up running him over in a weirdly like preceding H20. Like this is actually how you do it. Now he's lying on the ground. You drive that fucking truck over him until he pops like a watermelon. Um, you son of a bitch. <laughs> And Loomis is like, ah, the seed of evil has definitely carried forwards to his niece. Well, actually, what he does is go, no! I was just about to say, you are seriously paraphrasing there. Yeah, what he does is scream and start going, no! Because it's happened again under his watch. And he, st- he pulls out a 45 and to cap this girl. Yeah, so yeah, Halloween 3 season of The Witch is the only one without Michael Myers. Just if you're going to see any one of them, see that one. It's messed up. And Technically, it's not. Yeah? Is it not messed up? No, no, no. It's not the only one without Michael Myers. Oh, yeah. Well done. <laughs> There's a special way they get him in, kind of, sort of. Will it's a, it's a what if, if you will. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and we will see you for all that spookiness. Until then, I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And what, what if, if school was out? Was out? <laughs> <laughs>
beautiful house. You may ask yourself, where does that highway lead to? You may ask yourself, am I right? Am I wrong? You may say to yourself, my God, what have I done? Let the days go by. Let the days go by. 